Welcome back to our series on the book of Judges. Messy people, merciful God, and especially this portion that we've been doing the last three weeks, getting into Samson, maybe the most well-known judge, the last judge of the book. So today our message is going to be about settling scores. But first of all, is, is your life is your life filled with more with, with outrage or with apathy? Let's just, let's just throw some things out there. The world, the world says that sexual perversion is a lifestyle choice that should be celebrated. Fashions in this world are getting increasingly suggestive and inappropriate. Um, more and more states in the United States are legalizing marijuana. No doubt it's going to be here soon enough. Leaders, our political leaders, our public leaders are having less and less, um, less and less honor, dignity, morality. Um, Sundays. Sundays used to be sacred, right? Now every store is open, every sale is on, every youth sports league is scheduling games. Or our schools. Our schools have taken upon themselves to teach our children things that are directly contrary to the Word of God. So are just throwing a few of those things out there, are these the kind of things that fill you with outrage? leading you to, to say something about it and act on it because the name of God is not being honored? Or are these the kind of things that maybe you're just getting a little bit used to and just kind of um, maybe just avoiding conflict and really surrendering to the world? The nation of Israel sure was doing exactly that. And so it's time for Samson to come and deliver them because the nation of Israel really had been surrendering to the world. And so here comes Samson. We heard last week about that the angel, you know, appearing to his parents, a miraculous birth to this, um, this barren woman. So we're all excited about how God is going to deliver through Samson. And here's the first thing we hear Samson doing uh, from the time after he was born. Here's what we hear, uh, verses 1 to 3, and they're all going to just be printed in your bulletin today. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. So, first thing Samson does, the very first thing Samson does uh, that we hear him do is he goes to a Philistine town, a nearby Philistine town. He sees a young Philistine woman, and he wants to marry her. So, wanting a wife after just seeing her once, not even meeting her, but just seeing her, is not the mark of a mature 
spirit-guided servant of God now, is it? <laughs> I mean, this, this is not a very, be good, very good beginning for Samson. He's, he's, Samson is willful. He's undisciplined. He's spoiled that we see here. He's, he's um, just, he's incorrigible. He's, he's insubordinate. He's, he's wrong. His, his parents had heard the angel of the Lord tell them that, that Samson would deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. So imagine what they must have thought now when Samson came home and announced that he was going to marry one. His parents knew that it was wrong for Israelites to marry outside the nation of Israel. God had forbidden that, but especially for someone who was a Nazarite, who had taken the Nazarite vow like Samson had. But Samson says, get her for me. So he's basically commanding his parents like a spoiled child breaking the fourth commandment. And he says, she's the right one for me. Uh, the actual literal translation of the Hebrew is, she is right in my eyes. Remember that from last week? She's right in Sam's eyes. Not in God's eyes, but in his eyes. So just like everybody else, Samson was doing whatever he wanted to do because it was right in his eyes. And just this Philistine woman's foxy appearance was enough for him, apparently. There's a, there's a reason I'm using that. I know it's an outdated word, okay, but she's beautiful. I, say what you want. That was enough for Samson to make a, a very bad decision, to justify a very bad decision. So Samson is, Samson is um, impulsive. He, he, his senses control him. He sees, he wants, he takes. Right? And this impulsiveness of Samson is going to lead to a total lack of sexual self-control, which is going to end up defining his life. And beyond that, Samson is unteachable. He completely dismisses his parents, which in those days was unheard of. And so from the very beginning, we, we can see, we already can see that Samson is not going to be the judge that we were hoping for. But I want you to notice something about the text. Samson found his Philistine wife in a, a small Philistine town of Timnah, which is only four miles away from Samson's hometown, right in the middle of the Israelite territory. And, and the Philistines in that Philistine town didn't seem to be bothered at all by the fact that Samson came to their town. Samson didn't seem to be bothered by going there. And the, the Philistines were oppressing Israel. They, they, had, they were ruling over Israel and occupying Israel. But it seems that they were just peacefully living right side by side with them. And, and Samson didn't even think twice about marrying one of them. Did you notice that something is missing here from that normal judge's cycle? You know the, the normal cycle where uh, all throughout this, this whole book, the Israelites rebelled against God and started worshiping other gods. So then God allows another nation to come in and oppress them. And then they cry out to the Lord for help to rescue them. And then the Lord sends a judge to rescue them and deliver them. Did you see the one part of the cycle that is missing here? The Israelites had never cried out to the Lord for rescue. They weren't even resisting their enslavement. They, they had just accepted it now as a fact of life that the Philistines were their rulers. 
The Israelites used to, they used to groan and cry out when they were being oppressed. But now, it's like they've just settled into an apathy and they, did, they almost don't even realize that they are being enslaved. And so the Israelites, um, the Israelites aren't even resisting their captors anymore because they have completely adapted the values and the morals and the idols of the Philistines. And now marrying into the Philistine society seemed to be a culturally acceptable thing to do. So the Israelites had stopped seeing themselves as God's set-apart people. That was dangerous for them, and it's dangerous for us too. Um, Michael Wilcox, who wrote a commentary on this book, said this. I just want to read this quote for you. There is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. So that's our first take-home point for the day. When the church avoids conflict, it is really surrendered to the world. When the church avoids conflict, it is really surrendered to the world. Let me give you some examples. It's not just today. Let's go back to the early 1900s. The church wanted to be relevant to people who couldn't believe in miracles anymore. So a guy named Rudolf Boltman demythologized the Bible, meaning he took all the things out of the Bible that were miracle or that were supernatural, which basically reduced Christianity to a life, living a life of justice and, and mercy. But now there was, it had removed any um, conflict between Christianity and people who couldn't believe in miracles. It was avoiding conflict, but removing the most important thing of what God's truth is all about. So today, in order to avoid conflict, the church has been, the church has been accepting the world's view on homosexuality. The church has been accepting people living together before marriage. The church has not been practicing church discipline. The church has, in some cases, not even been preaching that Jesus is the only way to salvation. The church has, you know, been winking its eye at materialism and greed. The church has been allowing racism and social injustice. Because if it were to if it were to challenge these things and to preach against these things, there would be conflict, wouldn't there? How many times in our lives, is, isn't there a lot of times in our lives that, uh, that we have avoided conflict when the reality is we're actually surrendering to the world? Isn't that true in our own lives a lot of times? We, we want to just avoid conflict, but we're just really surrendering to the world around us, just kind of living in apathy with the way things are. So here is where Samson comes in. All right? God is going to use this train wreck of a guy to create conflict. That's his whole purpose. We've got to look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the key verse of this entire text. 
All right, if, if you want to understand the text of Samson, you want to understand our whole text today, it's all right here in verse 4. Verse 4 says, His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So that verse right there is what helps us understand what this whole text is all about. This whole thing was from the Lord, right? He was going to use Samson's sinful weaknesses to ignite conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. So Samson's apathy, his sexual appetite, his temper, his desire for revenge are all going to escalate conflict Bringing, finally bringing division between the Philistines and the Israelites that was so desperately needed. And through all of it, through all the ugliness, the Lord would be working. The Lord would be fulfilling his promises. Not just, um, not only in spite of sin, Samson's and the guys on the other side, but through their sin. He, he was going to use their own sin to bring deliverance. All right, so here it comes. Here comes the, the most violent action hero movie in all the Bible. We're going to see all the ugliness of a UFC cage match um, to the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. We're going to see violence, rage, anger, revenge, settling of scores. The story of Samson. So follow along. We're going to start now reading in verse 5 and make our way through these chapters. So um, just picture it like a, a match, I guess, and we're stepping into the ring now. All right, so verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. Uh, did I, it, you can find this on your, sorry, it's not all up here, but it is in the bulletin if you want to follow along. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Kind of interesting just to note, um, they're, they're, they're all going to Timnah. Samson, mom, and dad are going to Timnah, but somehow they didn't know about it, so they're not even traveling together. Kind of maybe um, shows the tension that was between them. And so he tears this lion apart. Now he has done what? He has touched a dead body. So he, as a Nazarite, is now unclean. And he should have stopped right there, gone back to whatever priest to go through the process of being made ceremonially clean again. But Samson is just way too excited to see this uh, foxy lady in Timnah. Verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. So by the way, both the honey and the carcass were unclean for a Nazarite and an Israelite. And so... Um, Again, Samson doesn't seem to care much about that. And then he even made his parents' ceremony unclean without letting them know about it. And you can kind of just see this attitude about Samson that he, he's, um, he's, he tries hiding what he's done. He doesn't, he doesn't care about it. He doesn't, he's not open about it. He's not transparent about it. Uh, but God knew about it. 
Verse 10, now his father went down to, to see the woman. And Samson made a feast there as was customary for bridegrooms. When he appeared, he was given 30 companions. H- how many of you who were married uh, were given your groomsmen? You, you probably chose them, right? Good friends, brothers, that kind of a thing. Um, maybe, maybe Samson didn't have any friends. Maybe there weren't enough Israelites to support what he was doing. He had to be given groomsmen for his wedding. Um, Philistines, so now there's this big party, there's this big feast. Um, I guess in archaeology, they have discovered that Philistines uh, drank a lot of beer by the stuff they've uncovered. Um, And so uh, Philistines were a beer-drinking kind of people, and uh, this was a wedding feast. We know uh, that a lot of wine uh, was was had at weddings, even in Jesus' day, even weddings Jesus went to. Uh, Hard to imagine with the way that Samson treated all of his other vows that, that he would have refrained from drinking at a feast and party like this, especially with this riddles coming up, which really sounds a lot like liquid courage. So verse 12, let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you could give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. Riddles were often like uh, entertainment at banquets. But this is a hugely expensive wager here. Most common people didn't have a, a change of clothes. They just had their clothes. 30 sets of clothes. This would have been for high noblemen, uh, very rich people. And Samson's showing a lot of pride here. This is beyond confidence, right into pride. So he replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And for three days, they could not give the answer. This riddle is very clever. It's a play on words. He throws the Philistines off by using things in their culture that uh, they would have been thinking about. But the words for lion and honey in Hebrew are actually the same word. They have the same consonants, different vowels, but the same consonants. So it's a very clever uh, riddle. Samson is a very intelligent guy. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? So the Philistines don't play fair at all, right? They had no scruples whatsoever. All right, verse 16, Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. So um, manipulation rather than love is really the foundation of their marriage, huh? I haven't even explained it to my father and mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? Oh, there's a problem right off the bat. <laughs> All right? The, this, this spoiled child is closer to his parents, uh, even though he, he was, ten, you know, tension with them. But he's closer to his parents than his future wife. So that's not a good way to start out, uh, those of you uh, who are looking for future husbands and wives. Um, um, you got to be able to explain stuff to your, your spouses um, more than your parents by that point. Let's just keep going, though. We could just keep on going on. S- verse 17, she cried the whole seven days of the feast. So apparently she had been crying even before they, they came to her. So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him, she in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, this is the answer to the riddle. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Two similar words. Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. They got the answer, 
by plowing with his heifer. Um, heifer is a younger, more inexperienced animal that you don't usually plow with. And so this, but he's basically saying you were imposing hard service on an inexperienced animal, doing something that was unfair of you to do, picking on this helpless woman. Um, you manip manipulated my wife. All right, round one. Here we go. It is time to settle scores now. Round one. So they cheated. They cheated to come up with the answer to that riddle, but a wager was a wager. Verse 19, then the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. So Samson's got to, you know, pay out the wager, but, and he does it in the worst way possible, but God is going to use this for his purposes. So this is going to start escalating a, a personal petty conflict that is going to escalate into a massive military confrontation. And so God is going to use here Samson's, uh, his temper, his bad behavior, his horrible morality for the purpose of punishing the Philistines. And then verse 20, and, Samson and Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. So the marriage was never consummated. The wife was given to his best man. Samson's not going to like that. So round two, settling scores round two. And this starts in the beginning of chapter 15. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. I was so sure that you thoroughly hated her, he said, that, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. But no one's going to tell Samson what to do, right? Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. But notice there's no the spirit of the Lord coming upon him in power here. Samson felt he deserved revenge. This is revenge-driven. I have a right to get even. So what do you do? Verse 4, So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. Samson had a thing with foxes. That, some people got it. I, that was going to be the theme for the sermon this week, and then I decided against it. All right. But Samson here shows... He shows strength, he shows agility, cunning, intelligence, and he shows cruelty, doesn't he? You know, I don't, I don't keep foxes for pets, but I mean, this, this is pretty cruel. Turning animals into incendiary devices, um, uh, just imagine, uh, just ima it's, it's a horrible thing to imagine. The pain from being a living torch would have been causing the foxes to jump around and toss about, making the, this devastation uh, worse than you can imagine. It destroyed all of the Philistines' sources of sustenance, all their, their field, their grain, their the olive groves, their vineyards, everything. Do, do you see the danger of, it just makes me think of, do you see the danger of letting 
foxes loose. And, and if this is kind of be like an illustration of anger and just letting foxes loose, going burning up the whole life sustenance of the person you're angry with, it just, I think it, it just, it reminds me of the damage that we can do when we let our foxes loose, when we, um, when we let our anger loose and our angry words into the lives of others, the damage we can do, it's, I mean, that's, this actually just happened. It's not a metaphor or anything, but it just reminds me. I mean, isn't that a picture of the damage we can do when, with our anger, with our temper, with our desire for revenge, with trying to settle scores? Well, so he burns everything up. Time for round three. Settling scores round three. Verse six, when the Philistines asked who did this, they were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. The, the Philistines were cruel. And they, they take revenge on this helpless family in, instead of fighting Samson. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam, viciously. That word in Hebrew simply means hip and thigh. Hip and thigh, like viscous. And, and the, the King James Bible, the English King James uh, version of the Bible, uh, translate that with a word viciously, hip and thigh. And that word has now come into our English language. We use viciously, you know, like, uh, you know, like a vicious animal or a, a vicious person, um, but it, it means a hip and thigh animal, hip and thigh person. So what is hip and thigh? He slaughtered them hip and thigh. Um, they, 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 there's a lot of guessing at it. Maybe it, it maybe was a wrestling move, like a martial arts type ancient wrestling move where, where he would have thrust his right leg under the right arm of an enemy flipping the guy over on his head. Because the, the epic of Gilgamesh does that in the epic of Gilgamesh. And so maybe it was a wrestling move that he defeated them. Or uh, maybe more violent would be just literally that he hacked off limbs and piled them up. Either way, what you have here is a violent slaughter of Philistines. Settling scores, round four. Verse nine, the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? So now it's escalating into larger scale. We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? It almost reminds you of one of the movies about the Hulk, right? How, how scared they are to deal with him. 3,000 men uh, of his own countrymen had to come and deal with Samson. Hmm. What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them as they did to me. Kind of a childish retaliation there. They said to him, we come, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him from the rock. The Israelites were weak. Instead of seeing Samson as, as, as their God-sent deliverer and joining him to fight, joining him in battle, they cooperated with the enemy and they hand him over. All the other judges, remember, raised armies. Gideon, you know, Othniel, Ehud, they raised armies. Samson fought alone. 
always alone. Verse 14, as they approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Okay, here comes the turning point now. This is the big turning point. Those new ropes that they had tied him up with became like charred flax, that basically like a burnt candle wick. They just fell off. And now the moment those ropes drop from Samson's hand, there's a change of mood that sweeps through both camps, right? Fear on one side, relief on the other gets replaced. Now there's relief over here and fear over there. This dude is, um, he's free, he's not tied up, and now the Philistines are going to be scared. So we get to verse 15. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Finally, here it is. Our promo image for the series on Judges, right? Samson grabs this impromptu weapon and kills a thousand guys. Never mind that that impromptu weapon would have again made him unclean. How many times is Samson touching dead things, not counting the guys he kills? Again, we see that God used Samson's weakness as a tool for judgment on the Philistines and deliverance for God's people. Verse 16, then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With, with a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Samson then taunts them. And it's, again, it's very colorful Hebrew language, using donkey and red and heap are all kind of the same word. Very clever little poem. So Samson slays a thousand men, then he taunts them with this little clever poem, and then he drops the mic. Verse 17, when he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and that place was called Ramoth Lehi, which, by the way, means jawbone hill. So it's either Samson dropping the mic, or it's him doing one of those really weird celebrations after a football player sacks the quarterback and starts screaming and, and throws something. That's what Samson is doing here. Verse 18, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. That's one of the best things Samson ever said. That's great. He acknowledges that God gave him the victory. Uh, but then the rest of the sentence is a little bit disappointing. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Kind of a demand there, complaint. But merciful God, verse 19, Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So here's some good news for us. God answers imperfect people when they call out to him, right? God, the answer to your prayers does not depend on your morality. Despite Samson's rage, all his weaknesses, the Holy Spirit works through Samson to deliver his people. Samson was incredibly gifted by the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? Killing a thousand men with nothing but the jawbone of a donkey is no small feat. But since Samson has God's Spirit, how can he not live with a little bit more holiness? I mean, if, if Samson was empowered by the Holy Spirit, how does, how does he show no patience, no humility, no self-control? It's because that even though Samson had these gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
He didn't have a lot of fruit of the Spirit. And that's our second point today. We can have gifts of the Spirit without having fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are for doing, right? So it's abilities to, um, abilities for you to help people serve, teach, speak, lead, um, give generously, encourage, witness, and so forth. The gifts of the Spirit are for doing, but the fruit of the Spirit is for being. Galatians 5 tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) Things we don't see in Samson, things we don't see in our own lives sometimes. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that, that you can have spiritual gifts for speaking, leading, teaching, and yet lack love without which those gifts mean nothing and scripture has all kinds of people who are greatly gifted by the holy spirit but have no holiness and we need to we need to beware of this in our own lives too right because maybe the holy spirit has given you all kinds of spiritual gifts for helping people, for changing the world. But inside, in your own life, in your own soul, in your own heart, can be a complete train wreck. Because often people who are good counselors, good teachers, good leaders, are giving in to temptation, frustration, anger, fear, discouragement. So let's recognize the difference between spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit your spiritual gifts that god has given you the the ways that he's given you to serve him are not proof of your spiritual strength right but 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 look at all this stuff that i do look at how many people i serve um how important i must be to them How, how how happy how pleased god must be with me but listen our spiritual gifts that god has given us to serve him are not the proof of our spiritual growth the fruit is love joy peace patience kindness the fruit of the spirit self-control gentleness the fruit of the spirit that is the proof that is the outward proof of the spiritual growth that god is doing inside of our hearts inside of our lives as he's bringing us closer to him so this might just be the same application of every sermon i'm preaching but it's just so true We need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Word of God. Because that is the only way to grow fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. We need to be in the Word. Encouraging each other in the Word. And we need to be people of prayer. Talking to God. Asking Him for help. Is is the way to show that we trust Him. And let's stop trying to do this all alone. It didn't work for Samson, did it? (laughs) He could have really used a friend to kind of advise him and guide him, right? Direct him. We need others around us to to direct us and and advise us and encourage us and correct us. People, friends, real friends who will point us to his word for spiritual growth. Here's a phrase that we hear in this text a bunch of times. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. 
All right, that, that gets repeated, and then we see Samson do some crazy thing, right? God gave Samson superhuman strength. I mean, a thousand guys, this is Superman. This isn't just like he's really strong or he's really good, you know, like Rambo or something. Um, he's Superman, thousand guys. So God gave him that, and so that super strength connected with his very weak moral character, his, his sinful weaknesses was all that was needed to cause the division between the Israelites and the Philistines that was so desperately needed. But maybe you're asking this question in your head, how can God use such flawed people to get his work done? Well, think about that. Let's, let's not limit God. Let's not limit God to using only good people who make good choices all the time. Because then not a lot of work would get done, would it? And then that would be saying that God really truly op- doesn't really truly operate by grace and that God actually responds to works. And friends, I got to tell you, the book of Judges is a book about God's grace. The book of Judges is a book about God's undeserved love. Messy people, merciful God. Friends, the Bible is a book about God's grace. So God works is our third point for today. God works through sinners and through sinful situations. God promises to bless us at the most disastrous times in our lives when, when everything's going wrong, when we're not doing what we should be doing, and the times when everything seems like it's going just perfectly right. Our sins won't stop God from saving us. Our sins won't stop God from using us. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is so faithful to his promises that he fulfills them. He works through them. He fulfills them not only in spite of our sin, but even through our sin. And God even uses the sinfulness of people to bring about deliverance. He uses even the sinfulness of people to bring about deliverance. And let me tell you, let me tell you about the most extreme example that has ever happened of that. God used the free, wicked choices of human beings to put his own son, Jesus, to death. There's a passage. Uh, God, God used the, the free and wicked choices of human beings to put his own son, Jesus, to death to redeem the world of our free and wicked choices. There's a passage in Acts, chapter 2, verse 23, that explains this. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So even though the people who put Jesus to death were doing so wickedly, God made things work out so that their wickedness would fulfill his saving purpose, allowing Jesus to suffer and die on our behalf for our wickedness. Settling the score once and for all between God and us. This conflict was the only thing that could have settled the score between God and us. And now it's settled and we are at true peace with God because he has removed anything 
all of our sins, all of our failures to do all the above, all of uh, the sinful weaknesses like Samson that we show in our life, God has removed all of that by this conflict right here. And so we are at peace with God, but maybe not at peace with the world around us. And we need to understand that, that God, in his mercy, in his mercy, uses our weaknesses to create conflict between us and our culture, to create conflict between the church and the world. And so let's pray that God shows mercy by not allowing the world to be at peace with the church for too long. Let's pray that God would show mercy so that the culture around, the, the culture around us would not be at peace with us for too long to help us recognize that we are not from this world, but that we serve a different Lord and Savior. And so let's not just sit around in apathy, pretending that, well, we're just part of the world and this is just the fact of life now. Let's cry out to the Lord to rescue us from ourselves and, and to rule over us despite ourselves. Let's cry out to him because he has always responded with grace in the way that he used the, the hardest conflict of all to make peace with us by his own son dying on that cross. Amen. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.